Hey, Upper Feasters. Hope you're having a great day so far. This week's episode, I talk with John Reese. He's one of the creators of Black Radish Creamery in Columbus, Ohio. I also interviewed his wife and co-creator, Ann Reese, and her episode will be out next week. They're super nice people. They're both cheese experts. They're cheesy and fun. We just really got into it. John tells me that vegan cheese is not cheese. Very firm on that one. John's unique background created a perfect storm to create an artisanal cheese shop. We really get into the deep of it with uh, buffalo mozzarella versus mozzarella versus burrata. And I learned that cheese is seasonal. That's a little fun fact. I don't know if you already knew that. I don't know if everyone in the world knew that. I didn't know that. I learned that, so we get, we get into that. And, you know, he's just an expert cheesemaker, cheesemonger. He's super dope. He tells me his uh, favorite cheeses, his most experimental cheese that he's made. We talk rare cheese, expensive cheese, cheesemaking process, grilled cheese. Cheese, 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 cheese. Sorry for that. Anyways, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you. So, uh, John, do you have any uh, unpopular food opinions? So being behind the cheese counter, and now I don't want to pick on anybody. That's that's one thing I want to make very clear is I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but when people come up and ask for vegan cheeses, I do definitely take a stance against that terminology. The product of nut loaves and fermented nut loaves, and there are some really, really good ones being produced that definitely have their place. And is that in place of cheese? Sure. There's nothing wrong with that, but it is not cheese. Vegan cheese is not cheese. It has to be made from milk. It has to be fermented or acidified. And I know there'll be some people that'll com- that'll complain about that. So there you go. There, there's an unpopular one right there that I'll, I'll definitely stand against. Other things I think about is, uh, you know, orange cheddar is better than white cheddar, um, which is just untrue. It's, they're all the same cheddar. It is uh, orange cheddar or red cheddar, if you want to go really historical. It's just uh, the extract from a natto seed, which has no real flavor, no real odor to it. It literally is there just to color the cheese. And there's there's a historical basis for why they started doing that. And if you have a moment, I can tell you that one yeah, too. Yeah, let's hear it. I'd love to hear <laughs> okay. it. Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> so this is a fun one. So way back in the day, uh, there was cheese making in communities. People would have, you know, their couple acres to a couple hundred acres, but they would milk their own cows and all the cows were on pasture and they would co-mingle all their milk into a co-op and they would make cheese. And this is why a lot of traditional cheeses are named after a town because everybody in that region took their milk into the center of that town so they can make bigger batches of cheese. And then that cheese was named after that town. So fast forward to uh, the agricultural industrial revolution, uh, people started discovering that they could get a higher yield from their cows if they fed them a grain heavy diet. And then they could also confine those cows into a smaller area, which means they don't have to support as much land, which, you know, taxes and just everything that comes with having a lot of land. So they started doing that with the cows. They started making cheese in that manner. And the consumer who was used to the co-opted cheese that was, you know, grass fed cows and, and by grass fed, those cows were also getting grain. Lactation is a very energy intensive procedure for these cows. So they would still get their grains, but they're out on pasture, mostly eating grass. So those consumers would taste this industrial cheese, or they would even just look at it and they would notice that it was white. And the cheeses that they're used to had a nice yellow hue to them. And so what is happening there is fresh grass has beta carotene in it such as carrots. And that beta carotene is not necessarily broken down by cows 
and that beta carotene passes through to the milk and imparts a yellowish hue. So if you look at any cheese and it is vibrant yellow and there is no, there's no colorings listed on the ingredients, you can pretty much safely assume that that cheese was made from cows eating grass, spring, summer, into the fall or something like that. But in the winter, and you can see this in, in the one cheese that we make called shenanigans, and we only make it in the winter. It is stark white. And that is because when you're when the cows are eating the dried hay, the, that beta carotene, it must be broken down or it's just degraded in the, in the dry hay. And there's no more beta carotene to go through to the milk. So back to uh, the coloring here. Uh, the industrial producer noticed that the consumer was like, what is this cheese? This is weird. This is not high quality cheese. It's white. So they discovered that if they take a natto seed, um, I think it's traditionally from India, and they put just a little bit of it into that white milk and just a little bit, they could tint it just enough that it would look like a grass fed cheese. So all of that coloring pretty much came about just to fool the consumer. But where did we go from a touch of coloring to red Lester, orange cheddar, <laughs> Uh, yeah. marbled Colby. Uh, the, the story that I've heard is so like going through and I'm not sure which war it's probably the first war maybe a war just before that there's a, a cheese called so a cheese is like red Lester. Uh, initially it was just Lester but that is a cheddar style cheese and the format in which it comes in it's like a wheel it's thick it's cloth bound it's drier it's very easy to ship it does not go rotten very easily perfect wartime ration so around like you know for instance the the region of Leicester that all the surrounding communities were told you need to make this cheese for the war effort and the people at the original producers of Leicester you know initially were like you know this is bs everybody's making this Leicester cheese now and we're the ones that originally made it so they took a natto and just just poured a ton of annatto in totally overcolored their cheese and they're like red lester that is the original one that's the one from lester it's not all the imitations and stuff so i know at least in that case example you know the orange or the red you know came about to identify a product as original from a, a specific area so fast forward to today white cheddar yellow cheddar orange cheddar and oddly enough and i don't believe they do this anymore they used to put titanium dioxide in the milk to make the white cheddar whiter back in the day. Wow. Everything's fake. It's all an illusion, man. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So if somebody has a white cheddar or an orange cheddar side by side, and one does taste better than another on a blind taste test, it's just because one cheese is better than another. But if you take uh, like the marbled Colby or any marbled cheddars like that, th those factories literally have two vats side by side they're making the exact same cheese at the exact same time they just put coloring in one of them so uh when it all comes down to it you always eat with your eyes first you taste with your emotions second and then you enjoy with your tongue so if if there's some connection to a childhood memory or you just love the color of that first it's going to taste better emotions emotions and and memories are always going to be the first driver Absolutely. So there you go. <laughs> Dude, thank you so much for that cheese knowledge. And I find it really like heartwarming and inspiring that the the cheese community started back back in the day, like they would just share their milk and stuff to make cheese. I think that's a really beautiful, inspiring story. So thank you so much for telling me that. Yeah, you're welcome. Anytime. I'm, I'm full of those stories. I love those stories. It's just 
the history of the culture there's just so much that goes into it every bite of cheese can be a story if you just kind of slow down and look at it a little bit absolutely and how did you discover that you had an affinity for making cheese or that you were good at making cheese like it just seems like such a challenging thing and like how did you come about that so uh, switched from nursing over to into business. And at that time I was dating Anne and she had graduated from CCAD uh, with a degree in photography, fine arts and photography. And her big thing was uh, food photography. She, she always loved food photography, just right off the rip. She was a, uh, a very good student. She did this, she did that, and she did it right. And I was all over the place. Our evenings would consist of looking up recipes, cooking stuff, taking pictures and watching Alton Brown. So I always loved the, why do you cook things a specific way? You know, and that's how you get outside of recipes, but you know, that's another tangent. But so we're sitting around one evening watching Alton Brown and I say to her, Hey, wouldn't it be fun if one of these days, and at this point, our relationship was pretty serious. And I said, wouldn't it be fun if one of these days, maybe like when we retire or something, we just open up like a little cafe, you know, it's just something fun where we get to do our own food, do like breakfast and lunch and that's it or something. And it's like, well, why don't you do that now? And I was like, screw it. Let's nice. do it. And, and literally life turned on a dime right there. And so within six months, we had both moved to New York. I was going to the Culinary Institute of America. Um, it was, it was nice to go to the nicest culinary school in the world. Um, and also to finish an actual bachelor's degree there. So got through culinary school and through a series of fortunate or unfortunate events, the uh, position that I had lined up upon graduating from culinary school fell through two weeks before I graduated Oof. and I'm like oh man and so I'm talking to you know my different instructors and stuff and and they kept saying cheese 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 and it was all independent conversations but cheese kept popping up one of them actually said cheesecake factory but I only heard cheese so I got a job with a local cheese maker in Poughkeepsie New York all of a sudden it just it all came together I had the microbiology, I had the science, I had the physical nature of it, I had the business side of it, I had the food side of it. It just all came. I'm literally getting goosebumps talking about it right now. It's like a so story. that was exactly, exactly. So everything came together. And at that point, I was like 29. Yeah, I was 29. Also, I was like, you know, I've got to commit to something for a good chunk of my life. Why not this? So all that came together. It was time to make that commitment and boom, said, this is what I'm doing and been working on it ever since. Dude, that's an incredible story. I love that. And uh, New York actually has great cheese. It's a great cheese state. I feel like yes. people always talk about like Wisconsin or Vermont or maybe even like California, but New York has some great cheeses. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I could rattle off a dozen places there that I, I would go anytime. Yep. I, I'm trying to learn more about cheese and I started my food account almost four years ago. And when I first started, I was very naive. Like I literally thought Buffalo mozzarella, I thought it was like a spicy mozzarella. It's so embarrassing to admit, but uh -huh. when I first heard of it and now, like now that I know that it's, it's just a mozzarella, whatever, but I can't tell the difference between Buffalo mozzarella and normal mozzarella. Are you, do you have a refined enough palate that you can tell the difference? It all depends on where it's coming from. If I tasted buffalo mozzarella from water buffalo and I tasted it from cow side by side, there, there's so many factors that go into it. They can change the flavor, but theoretically you really should because the water buffalo is going to have at least twice as much butter fat in the milk. So the mouthfeel, at least for me, is probably the first thing that I would notice. Also, I have had water buffalo mozzarella from a farm 
and it was the middle of winter. So the water buffalo were pretty much inside at this point, a little more close confinement. You could just really taste the barn coming through in that milk. But uh, one of my, one of my all time best food memories was I got to do like three, four weeks in Italy and we were all over Italy, just eating everything. And we went to a water buffalo farm in Sorrento, Italy. And there's just so much romanticism about it. The family that owned the farm, they like breed horses for the Spanish monarchy. The lady that owns the farm, she's literally a baroness. I mean, it, it was absolutely ridiculous. But they take us through their little mozzarella factory. And I mean, they're and by factory, I mean, it's like probably 2000 square feet. It wasn't a big building either. And uh, they were, you know, popping fresh mozzarella and they would only bring in about, I think it was like eight to 10 of us at a time. And we probably had a group of 30. So they pulled a ball of mozzarella. I mean, just pop, 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 pop. They're making it fresh and they hand us one. I try it and just, my my mind just exploded. And yeah, I don't even remember anything else that happened over the next five minutes, except that the tour was over and I took off my hat, changed my coat and went back in for another tour just so I could get another piece of that fresh <laughs> mozzarella de buffalo. It was amazing. Could you help explain uh, burrata? Hey, just wanted to say thank you so much for listening so far. If you're liking it, please subscribe, tell a friend. If you're loving it, please give us a five-star review. So uh, what you're going to get commercially compared to what may have been done traditionally is going to be a little bit different. When we're stretching mozzarella, and this is so funny because literally 10 minutes ago, I just stretched 10 pounds of mozzarella. So <laughs> I'm right there with you. When you stretch the mozzarella and you end up with the little bits, like, you know, you, you squeeze that, you have the ball on top, boom, you got your nice fresh mozzarella. But what do you do with all these little bits that are left here? What they, they would do is they would take those bits and they would shove them into a ball of mozzarella. Whether traditionally they added cream to that or not, I am not sure. But now uh, it has evolved into the the version that we get, uh, you know, the popular version where it's basically going to be a bunch of little bits of mozzarella with additional cream in the center there. Nice. It's delicious. Big fan of that. Do you have a, t- a top three favorite cheeses? I know that's probably a tough question. It's seasonal because I will fall in love with the cheese and then I'll eat it till I'm sick of it. And then I'll move on to a next cheese and then I'll come back to it later. This is one of the... The questions I absolutely hate the most at the cheese counter because I will go, well, you know, holler hawker is really good. I could eat that one all the time. But then this one over here, we just got this one in and it's peaking right now. This one is absolutely delicious. And then literally I rattle off three, four, five cheeses. So uh, Rogue River Blue. I loved Rogue River Blue before it was cool. It's the it's blue cheese candy. It's from Rogue Creamery in Oregon. They won the world championship, I think it was about two years ago now. Um, And I believe that's the first time a U.S. made cheese won the world championship. It it was absolutely top of the pinnacle. And it's funny, so at our cheese shop, after it won it, we kept getting requests for it. And the price went up so dramatically that we had to sell it for $90 a pound. And that was even reducing the margin that we normally take on it. Yeah, I know. And we went through two wheels in, I think, three weeks. Now, this was right before Christmas. So people are going crazy. But before it won that, you would be able to go into Murray's and Kroger's and people wouldn't be familiar with it. And you would find it in the little bargain bin. Um, Sometimes I would, we would have it in our cheese case and I would, I would buy it in Murray's because it'd be so discounted. I'd be like, People don't understand. I will buy this cheese all day long. So uh, I'm going to go with uh, Rogue River Blue and maybe Holler Hawker. Those ones I could, I could always, and 
now I'm thinking about 50 other cheeses, but I'm um, final answer. Okay. <laughs> I'll just stick with that. Fair enough. And I didn't realize that cheeses had seasons. I mean, I guess it makes sense because the cow or the sheep or the goat is eating different things. Is that what affects it? Or does the temperature affect it too? Absolutely. All of the above. So like for instance, Jasper Hill, they have a couple cheeses that they're only going to make during the winter. Like uh, I believe Harvestin they only make in the winter. And then there's also, I just blanked. <laughs> anyway, there's some really good, super goopy cheeses, like where you just cut the top off of the cheese and you scoop out the paste. Yeah. Those ones are predominantly made in the winter because the, the fat content is so much higher in the winter. The, the cows are eating dry grass, so their food is much more concentrated. So those winter cheeses are just, they're just over the top, velvety, unctuous. I mean, you know, you're just throwing all kinds of fats and proteins and amino acids on your tongue and you got a piece of toast or even some like French fries. And then you're throwing some carbs and salt in there and you're just lighting your brain up. So that stuff's absolutely amazing. And then going into the summer, I mean, you got like some nice fresh goat milk cheese, some Chev or some Humboldt fog, and you put some blueberry preserves on that. Forget about it. Exactly. Exactly. So the, the seasonality of those things and, you know, water buffalo or, or just buffalo style mozzarella, tomatoes. Yeah, classic. With, with goat cheese in particular, at least what I've seen, I, it's almost always like a creamy soft cheese. Is there a reason that it, they're, they're, the hard cheese is not more common for a goat? I can't give you a definitive answer, but I can definitely take a stab at it. So goats obviously are going to milk a lot less than cows will. You get a little better yield when you're making the cheese, but overall, each animal is going to produce less milk. So the milk costs more. The drier the cheese you make, the harder the cheese you make, the lower your yield is going to be as a cheesemaker. You're already taking an expensive milk and you're removing a lot more weight out of it. So you're going to have to sell that for even more. So it makes the, the finances of it a little more difficult. Also with goat's milk, you can get, like if you don't have good animal husbandry or farming practices, if you have a billy goat close to the, the milking goats, the flavor of the billy goat, the musky ugh, will just get right into the milk. Really? Yeah. And so as cheeses age and they get older, they, they become more concentrated. So if you have any of those off flavors in that cheese, it's just going to become, you know, it's just going to be compounded and make that cheese even worse. But um, and also just traditionally goats being smaller animals, you know, just having a smaller yield, all of their traditional cheeses, like, uh, you know, all the cheeses of northern uh, northern France, Loire Valley, uh, those colder regions that are just all you know, just lots of goat milk cheeses. It's just, that's just the tradition. So a lot of it could be tradition as well. That makes sense. Thank you for that. Now, like at your shop, is there like a most experimental cheese? Like you tried to like shoot for the stars or, and you, you hit, you know, out of the park. Like, is there something really like fun and exciting that you've done yourself? As far as bringing other cheeses in, what have we tried? I mean, we're always, we're always trying. And I'm trying to think if there might be one that turned out to be just absolutely amazing that we weren't expecting as far as like a seller goes. And I can't think of any off the top of my head. It may come to me. As far as my cheeses go, it's, it's always a work in progress. I will say this last year, I started developing a new cheddar going through COVID. So we, we have basically a handshake agreement with our partner in farm Stonewall Dairy that we're always going to buy milk from them. And going through, you know, the worst parts of COVID, obviously sales 
dropped off. Restaurants weren't open. We weren't selling to restaurants, but we had to keep our farmer in business too. So we continued to buy milk. So I needed to figure out a cheese that I could probably sell at five or six months. But if it ends up sitting on the shelf for a year or two, that's also fine as well. So I started developing a new cloth bound cheddar. When I first got into cloth bound cheddars, my consultant, he works with a lot of other cheese makers. So you can look at the cloth bound cheddar that I started making named Charlie's Legend. And you can see a lot of similarities to a lot of other artisan cloth bound cheddars in America that the mm -hmm. same consultant has worked with. And they're typically a little bit sweeter. They got a little bit of sharpness to them. Um, but, but the sweetness is kind of like the overarching, like American, like cheddar thing right now. And I fell in love with British style cheddars that were very savory. Um, almost had like broth notes to them. And I always liked uh, Red Leicester, which if you're not familiar with Red Leicester, it is in that cheddar family. And there's a whole nother tangent I can go down on Red Leicester, but I haven't seen anybody in America doing a Red Leicester inspired cheese. So I was like, well, I'm going to try doing a different cheddar. I put together this cheddar. I put together the recipe, which actually I, I took out a lot of the additional cultures that I would put in. They're called adjunct cultures. And these cultures help provide different flavors through the maturing process. So maybe I'm tooting my own horn. I don't know. But as an artist gets better, I like, you know, toot toot. I don't know. But this is what's run through my head. As an artist gets more proficient in their medium, they start to simplify and take things away. And I feel that's like one thing I was able to do with this cheddar. So I started taking a lot of all that extra stuff, um, a lot of those extra cultures away and just kind of letting the milk and the process put its its stamp on it. And uh, I mean, this cheddar just, it turned out great. It is a, a red cheddar. I mean, it's orange, but we call it red. And since it's a naturally rinded cheddar, it gets a really nice gradient going from orange to dark orange towards the uh towards the rind so it's visually very striking like somewhere around within like five months or so of making it I was tasting it and the flavors were already starting to come out and I was getting those savory flavors so as far as like you know kind of going crazy and making stuff up that's one of the more recent ones and I mean I've got some other ones but that's that's probably the most recent creation that I'm extremely happy with I love that and so when you make a cheese like say for example I don't know if you make a cheese like this but you know six months dry aged 18 months dry aged whatever is, is there any way in, that you can like taste test it along the way to make sure it's not ruined or do you just have to wait that time period and hope for the best Absolutely. You're tasting it through the whole process. If it's going to be a cheese that's going to be uh, semi-firm to firm, like cheddar all the way up to Parmigiano, I usually don't even taste it before five months. Uh, and that was something I learned in the beginning. But we use this thing called a cheese dryer. It's uh, it's not really a core screw. How do you describe it? I don't know. It's You just stick it into the wheel, go like this, and you pull out a plug of cheese. And there's usually one sacrificial wheel per batch and that one you know you just keep plugging it you know over the course of its life and you're tasting it but for instance it, you know kind of nerding out here you've got proteins and generally proteins you know the the, the good analogy is it kind of looks like a ball of yarn just all bound up right mm -hmm. and that's what the protein looks like on day one and then uh, as you go through time the different enzymes that the cultures are releasing start to break down those proteins into polypeptides so longer chain proteins but the most interesting thing is once that once that ball of protein just starts to break open it exposes a whole bunch of regions that are actually really bitter 
And this is one of the first lessons I learned in cheese making um, or cheese aging is if it doesn't taste good, but you have room for it in your aging room, just let it sit. One of my first cheeses, I think it might've been my first batch. I was just too excited. And in about three or four months, I tasted it and I was like, oh, this is gross. It was so nasty. So I just gathered up as much cheese as I could carry and I just threw it out in the field. I was like, gone, done with it. But then I came back to, I left, I don't know, I probably left like a half dozen wheels in my aging room came back like three months later and it was delicious absolutely delicious so tasting as we go through time it is very important to taste as you're going through time just to see the development um because because cheeses definitely do peak and they definitely come down the drier the cheese is the slower it peaks the slower it comes down and again you want to taste for off flavors early in the ripening process, because if you do taste an off flavor, but it's still quite palatable, maybe you can still bring that cheese to market, but you're definitely not going to take that cheese and put it in your reserve and age it out for another year or two. Um, like, you know, some may do with like cheddars or, you know, like extra aged howdas or something like that. So is there anything that you can do to salvage it? Like say a cheese is kind of mediocre or just kind of missing the mark? Like, is there anything you can do other than time? Cut it up, shred it up. Okay. <laughs> Sell it as shredded blend. Okay. That's probably the best thing you could do. Uh, I, I think the most important thing is as long as you're honest with your consumer, don't take that cheese and try to sell it as what you were trying to make it initially. Like say I was trying to make a, oh, by the way, that one cheddar that I told you I was making, it's called Bandit Red Cheddar. Um, so say I'm trying to make Bandit Red Cheddar and the flavor profile just isn't quite there, but it still tastes good. I may put that into our artisanal shredded blend, or I may just sell it in our farm store, sell it, you know, just locally, but I'm not going to go to the restaurants that we sell to or any of our commercial customers and say, this is Bandit Red Cheddar and try and sell it to them. I mean, for the most part, as long as the cheese is made properly, safely, and is salted, it's going to end up tasting good. Yeah. It's, it's for the most part, as you, you know, you start off with good milk, you have good clean processes and you have your right acidification and everything. Um, you know, I mean, some things just happen along the aging process, or maybe there was some other type of natural flora and fauna in it. And it does change the flavor profile outside of your parameters. You know, just be honest with your customers. And usually you can just end up cutting it up and selling it, give people a deal that they probably won't mind. And I mean, we've done that many times. Oh, I, I agree totally. I think open and honest communication can get you away with pretty much anything in my experience. What would you say the fanciest cheese you've ever had? Or maybe we could just call it the most expensive or most rare cheese that you've ever had? Definitely the most expensive is going to be that Rogue River Blue. Okay. Yes, yeah. that was definitely the most expensive. Most rare cheese. I don't remember the name of it, but on that same trip to Italy, there was a cheese... Oh man, it's like almost on the tip of my tongue. I remember they used the Mona Lisa as like their branding, but it is this super funky cheese where they take something about the size of a camembert and then one just a little bit smaller and then one just a little bit smaller. And that cheese has that kind of like step pyramid shape to it. That I've never seen that cheese anywhere else ever. Um, except for that one trip to that one cheesemaker in Italy. So that one might be the most rare. Another rare one we're trying to get in is uh, a Parmigiano Reggiano uh, made from Vaca della Rosa, which are red cows. It's a, uh, it's like a heritage breed style Parmigiano Reggiano. Any producer who makes 
Parmigiano Reggiano is going to be an amazing producer, but there are still smaller producers that make smaller batches that like just take it to another level and uh, we're trying to get a wheel of that parmigiano reggiano vaca della rosa into the shop that is a cheese that i've been wanting to try for at least five or six years from when i first learned about it so yeah there's there's another one hopefully hopefully we get that one in and that might be one of the more rare ones as well so with Parmigiano Reggiano, do you have to make it in Italy, for example, like kind of like the Champagne region of France? Is it one of those things technically or? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Parmigiano Reggiano, when branded with that name, is a PDO cheese protected designation of origin, which means it has to be made with very uh, specific standards from uh, usually the types of cows, um, how long the milk has been outside of the cow, how long it's been held, the, the vessels that it's made in, how long it has to age. Uh, for instance, uh, Parmigiano Reggiano cannot be exported or will not be exported uh, before 18 months. Um, now they will eat younger Parmigiano Reggiano in Italy, but they will not export it before it's 18 months old. So it, yeah, it has to come from that specific region from one of the specifically licensed producers in that region. And yeah, and they have to follow all those very specific standards in order to get that Parmigiano Reggiano uh, designation. Otherwise it can't be. So here in America, when you see Parmesan, that is just a ripoff. It's a <laughs> ripoff of Parmigiano Reggiano. So yeah, all, all your listeners, Parmesan, Parmigiano Reggiano. There you go. Put that's, your that's what you want. That's what you want. So is it challenging you for you as a cheese seller to, to get this big wheel of cheese? Like how urgently do you need to sell it? Like, is there any way to keep it fresh enough to sell for like months on end? Or is it like a super short window? Being uh, Parmigiano Reggiano, it's very dry. It's shelf stable. So we do have a lot of flexibility. So if, if you've ever seen somebody like crack a wheel of parm and they open it up and the inside's kind of craggy, uh, what we'll do that, um, we'll put on an event and, you know, all the little pieces that fall, we hand those out, let everybody taste it and stuff for free. But then we smooth down those sides. We take a cheese wire. Yes, it's not as romantic. It's not as traditional, but we had a wheel of regular Parmigiano Reggiano, cracked it open and we left the one half side. We didn't trim it down. It was all craggy and it wasn't wrapped well enough. And so we had to shave off about a quarter of an inch around that whole entire Oh my that gosh. whole entire wheel. Oh and that ended up costing, I mean, it was like $60, $70 retail value worth of Parmigiano Reggiano. I mean, you're not quite 10%, but boom, that's 10% of the wheel right there. Yeah. So you really got to be careful with it. You know, so we get uh, how we treat our current Parmigiano Reggiano and this Parmigiano Vaca Della Rosa. First off, having two shops in order to split the wheel up into two, that makes it go a lot quicker. Uh, but again, we'll crack it open. We will cut those faces nice and clean. The, the parts that we cut off, we just sell those as retail pieces. Then we just, we put a uh, cheese paper on the cut surface and then we wrap it up really tight with a uh, plastic wrap. And as far as Parmigiano cares, it's like, eh, whatever, I'm fine. I mean, it's such a stable cheese. As long as you just take care of that cut surface, it's, it's going to last quite a while. But uh, it, it usually doesn't take us much more than a month or so to get through a, a half a wheel per shop. That's cool. So I wanted to ask you, I want to make sure we talk about this. I always like to ask my, my guests, what are your top three Columbus, Ohio restaurants? One of the newer ones that we tried was uh, Novella Osteria in Powell, uh, very traditional Italian, handmade pasta. 
and obviously I'm, I'm very partial to Italian cooking. It's, it's not fancy. It's very ingredient driven. That's the type of food that I really, really enjoy. So uh, Novella Osteria, Chapman's Eat Market has been doing some awesome stuff. Can't complain with them. One that I don't think people hear enough about, but I've never had a bad meal there is Alkira in, what would that be? Uh, not, it's like Victorian Village area. Um, they've always done really good. Also, it's definitely worth going. Definitely. It's, it's, it feels very farm to table. They've got really good ingredients, but every time we've gone there, they, they've never disappointed, but I mean, I, I could just keep going. I mean, skillet, if I'm having brunch, I can always eat that. And if you want to travel just outside of Columbus, Ghost Rider and Johnstown of all places, absolutely amazing. I've never had a bad meal there, but those are the places like if, if I'm going to go out and eat they're not necessarily like my everyday, I'm just I need to grab a quick bite to eat in and out type places. But those places sit down, enjoy the meal, leave like, oh, I'm so full. That's the best feeling in the world, man. Yes. So being that you are a cheese expert and you have had countless fancy cheeses, when you go for a grilled cheese, do you like a fancy grilled cheese or just straight up American cheese or maybe a high quality American cheese? We do a lot of things. One that I really enjoyed making was there is a cheese from Virginia called uh, Grayson, which is a very similar to a uh, Taleggio, which we, we've been having a problem getting it. So I would say I would use the raclette that I make right now, which is a wash rind cheese, offers just a little bit of funk to it. Um, a little bit of salty, nice nutty, nice butteriness to it, not over the top. But that good sourdough bread, butter the outside of that bread, salt and pepper, you got to season it. You want salt and pepper to be the first thing to touch your tongue because that just turns everything up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would take thyme and put thyme on the outside of the bread so it basically gets fried into the outside of the bread. We've got the raclette on the inside. From there, I would do slices of a very nice ripe pear and a little drizzle of honey. Mm, that's a good grilled cheese right there. That's a good grilled cheese. Do you use butter or mayonnaise for your, your fat for the bread? Uh, I typically use butter, but if you make homemade mayonnaise and you put that on the outside, this it's so funny you say that because I want to be doing this at our cheese shops um, when we offer grilled cheese and it's going to be called, you know, crust it. Boom, mm-hmm. you do that. You mix a little bit of Parmigiano-Reggiano up in that mayonnaise and then it's just, ah. Oh, forget about it <laughs> yes exactly exactly oh, i i personally think that's a beautiful way to end the podcast but if there's anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted to say please go ahead but i, I think we nailed it and i think we did a great job i think that's about it shout out to all my cheesemonger and cheesemaker friends moo ba ma and uh thank you so much for having me on this is a good time i hope we get to do it again absolutely john and i hope you have a great rest of the day and i'll be talking to your wife soon my man have a good one buddy you too take care All right, bye. Hey, well, that was the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to tell a friend and share this on your social media. We really appreciate it. Maybe give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And also, I just wanted to thank John and Ann. They sent me a free cheese package. They do like a monthly cheese club. And you have to like email them to join and everything. So I felt really honored that I got to try their fancy VIP cheeses. It had burrata. It had like a firm... I believe like goat's milk or sheep's milk or something. Sorry, I don't remember. I don't have it in front of me, but it it was all super good. And there was like a really good Gouda. It was great. So thank you guys, John and Ann. And if you're in Columbus, Ohio, you should definitely sign up for their cheese package, their monthly cheese club. I think it's super great. It's a great way to experiment with cheeses. And they also put in like a little paper sheet that had like tons of information on it. So it's not like, oh, why don't I just go to the cheese store and buy some cheese? Well, the answer is, John and Ann give you a bunch of cheese information and you can learn and uh, 
pig out on some cheese and learn some stuff.